This morning is going to be a little bit different than you're probably used to, and that's because I'll be preaching a first-person sermon from the character of Nehemiah, covering chapters 1 and 2. So this morning, let's go back to the time of Nehemiah. We'll go to the Persian Empire, to the palace at Susa, and Nehemiah had just come back from a year in Israel, and he had rebuilt the wall. He had to give a report to King Artaxerxes, and now we get to hear his memoirs on that time in Jerusalem. And so, as we listen to the story of Nehemiah, we want to be thinking about the same question that he was asking, and that is, where is God in the midst of his broken and faithless people? Let's hear from Nehemiah. My name is Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, servant of the Lord, a man of Torah, God's law, which has been passed down in my family from generation to generation. I pray and study often. I am loyal and faithful. Still, I wonder where God is in the midst of it all. It was a year ago today that I was sitting right here in the western wing of the palace at Susa in the Persian Empire. The window there at the western wall, it looked out towards Jerusalem, the home of my forebears. My initial task is now complete. I continued to wonder why God had not returned His presence to Jerusalem. The temple was rebuilt, I had rebuilt the walls, and yet, where was God in it all? That day, a year ago, I was reading from the book of Deuteronomy, and I was wondering when God would make good on His promises. It read, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God. He will scatter you among the peoples. He will drive you out among the nations. But that same passage in Deuteronomy didn't end there. No, it continued on and said, But the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with which He has made with you and your fathers that he swore to them. My granddad would often recite this passage, and he had good reason to. Granddad would tell me stories about Jerusalem. That was before King Nebuchadnezzar had come in and laid siege to the city and destroyed the temple. Yeah, granddad was old. That was over 140 years ago. He's gone now. I wish I could talk to him again and ask him about what it was like there at the dedication to the rebuilt temple that Ezra had done 70 years later after it had been destroyed. Granddad said there was a great commotion. The younger people rejoiced, but Granddad mourned. He had known its former glory and wept. 
He had seen the splendor of Solomon's temple, its glory and its majesty. And this wasn't the same. Yeah, it had been rebuilt. But not only was it not as majestic and it didn't have the same splendor, but the glory of the Lord had not returned to it. And didn't God promise that He would? Didn't He say He would gather the people from among the nations and bring them back? He said He would never leave, destroy, or forget His people. It's what Granddad always prayed. And here I've lived in exile, wondering where God is in the midst of it all. Sometimes I feel like I've been forgotten. But I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten God. I've never been to Jerusalem, yet my heart has always been set on it. It is His city. And I've grown up comfortably here in exile, always knowing that the Jews could return to their homeland. Wasn't it Cyrus who decreed that the Jews could go back and rebuild Jerusalem? Yet why should I leave the court of the king? I live a comfortable life here, in the Persian Empire, here in the palace. I have every need met, every hunger is satisfied, every thirst is quenched. The king permits me to study and pray to my God, as long as I also serve him faithfully and loyally. And who am I to return to Jerusalem anyway? I'm not a priest. I'm not a prophet. I'm not part of the line of kings. I'm just plain. I'm ordinary. Getting older. And no name in the chronicles of Jerusalem. Judah wouldn't recognize me. My lot is here in exile. Besides, God has remembered his covenant, hasn't he? The temple's been rebuilt. Ezra's there. He's preaching the word every day. God's there, right? Maybe one day I'll get to go to Jerusalem. But while I still serve the king, my lot's here. I belong in exile. Well, a year ago, as I was sitting there reading the book of Deuteronomy, my thoughts were interrupted by footsteps coming down the corridor. I turned to see my visitor, and it was, it was Hananiah. It was my brother. You know, everyone's your brother or sister, even if it's your mother's second cousin's son, once removed. Well, we greet one another and embrace, and I asked him, what news from Judah and the city of our fathers? It's, it's not good, Nehemiah. Yeah, we've, we've gotten through exile and we've returned to Jerusalem, but the people are dismayed and a reproach. What do you mean, Hananiah? Aren't things better than they've ever been? Ezra rebuilt the temple. He's preaching the word daily. Things are better now than they've ever been in a century. Yeah, you're right, brother. I mean, 
Ezra does preach the word, and my soul's been revived. Even I've been spared from my sin, repenting of what I had done, and I had put away my wife. But don't you see, Nehemiah? It was your king, King Artaxerxes. He's the one who gave the edict to stop the building of Jerusalem. And the enemies, our enemies, they didn't just forcibly stop the work. They destroyed our defenses. Nehemiah, the walls are completely broken down and the gates are burned with fire. I was dismayed. The walls broken down? The gates destroyed by fire? How could this happen? How could God allow this kind of destruction? So I mourned. I wept. I sat down and fasted and prayed for days. Asking God, where are you? Have you abandoned your people? You said you would gather them from among the nations and rebuild Jerusalem, that you would make a place for your name to dwell. And now there are broken and faithless people. God, who would go to help them? Who would lead them back to protection and safety? Who would you want to restore Israel from this broken place? And so I continued to fast and pray and ask God what was to be done. And I said to him, O Lord my God, you who keep your covenant with your people, we have sinned against you. I in my father's house, we have forgotten the law of Moses, the commandments and the statutes that you gave to him and your people. We have sinned. And so because of our faithlessness, you scattered us among the nations. You drove us out among the peoples. And I pray, Father, that you would bring back your people. Gather them again so that you may make a place for your name to dwell. O oh Lord, hear my prayer and grant me success this day before the king and grant me mercy in his sight. And I needed it because I was the cupbearer to the king. And I sensed that God was calling me to leave my post as royal cupbearer to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That he was calling me to act on his behalf to revive and restore his people so that his glory might return to the city of David. I've had my share of comforts as cupbearer in the palace. I do, after all, taste everything before the king does, and I drink everything before he does. 
the best of foods. I get to go to all the banquets and the feasts. But you know, it's more than just food and fun. Serving in the palace is a big responsibility, for I have to handle all of the storehouses and the wares. I have to talk with the suppliers and the traders, vet all of the palace guests before the feasts come, and keep an ear to the ground for any hint of treason. Why, you ask? Sure, being chief taste tester has its perks. But if there's a drop of poison in the king's goblet, I get it first. And so, King Artaxerxes requires unwavering loyalty. I need to be faithful in everything that I do. I'm not permitted to speak to him unless he's addressed me first. My countenance always needs to be pleasant and happy. I have to smile before him. If he saw any hint of sadness, he would think it an ill omen, or what evil intent is there against me as the king? I also need to show reverence for fire, because that was the symbol of his god, Zarathustra. His god also demanded purity whenever I would serve, and so if I had touched a dead body, I would need to cleanse with water. These are all requirements for ceremonial purity that the king demands of me in his presence. Obeying them is a sign of loyalty to him and his empire. But disobeying them and his God would mean sure treason and sudden death. They would be marks of evil. And so, for four months... After hearing Hananiah's report, I fasted and I prayed without neglecting these duties to the king, without shirking my responsibilities of being ceremonially pure and clean when I was the cupbearer. And I prayed, reminding God of his covenant with Israel. I confessed my sin and the sin of my father's house. I sought the face of the Lord to grant me favor with the king as I mourned and was sad, and that each day I would show that loyalty, that I would be pure and pleasant and happy. And slowly, as if a veil being lifted from a young bride, the Lord revealed his plan to me. To Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, God wanted to send me. But as a cupbearer, I'm not allowed to just leave my post. Again, that would be treason. I'd be killed. Yet I know the unrest in the provinces beyond the river. It's been a concern of King Artaxerxes. And it's also a place that is an effective outpost for bordering Egypt. And he needs to have a good leader there in Judah to serve in his wars with Egypt. I know that the king has his mind bent toward Egypt. And I've demonstrated my loyalty for over a decade. I'm sure if I can convince him that it's his plan, 
He wouldn't mind setting me up over there, putting me in as the governor of the provinces beyond the river. I'm sure he'd welcome my leadership in Judah. Yeah, so here's, here's what I've been planning. The commemoration festival of the new year, it's, it's coming up soon in the month of Nisan. And at this festival for new year, the Persian kings made it a practice that they would show benevolence to their servants and grant their requests. Maybe there at the month of Nisan, if I can, if I can get the king to address me, I can make my proposal. In fact, wouldn't he want to restore Jerusalem as that effective outpost? Surely that would be a good idea. But then again, no, he did have that edict where he said to stop rebuilding the temple and stop rebuilding the walls. But he also made a provision that if he made another edict, he could overturn that. Yes, clearly, that would work. But how do I get him to address me? Oh, I don't know, it's risky. That might work. No, that won't work. Well, but it's my only option. What if I let my countenance just be a little sad. He would think I'm unfit to serve. He would say, clearly there's evil intent in my cupbearer. He'd have to talk to me then or just kill me. Oh, it's risky, but it's true, isn't it? I've been mourning for months over the destruction and the desolation of my city, the place of my forefathers. Why shouldn't I be sad? Besides, he needs to know that his subjects didn't obey his decree. They destroyed the work, the progress that was happening in Jerusalem, and they desecrated the city with fire against his God. King Artaxerxes ought to know. But I'll, I'll need to be careful how I phrase it. If he hears the name Jerusalem, all he's going to hear is that wicked and rebellious city. That city that he made an edict about. No, I'll have to phrase it differently. I know King Artaxerxes' belief in Zarathustra. He does have great respect for the dead. I know. I'll call it the place of my father's graves. He'll feel obligated to have to do something to respect the dead in obedience to his God. Yeah, that'll work. Maybe then he'll be willing to hear my proposal. So the next couple weeks passed and I continued my practice of fasting and praying, committing my plan to God. And so I prayed again, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servant this day before this man and grant me mercy before the king. 
Now today was that day. You should have seen the feast. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. We had invited the most prominent citizens within the empire. Absolutely spectacular. We had the choice foods from all different cultures. It was perfect for the king and my plan. Yet as I served him the meal, I noticed he wasn't happy about my countenance. I was expected to have mirth and be pleasant and happy before him, and yet he was silent during the meal. And so I was growing nervous. There was a sort of rumbling, churning in my stomach, and a lump was getting caught in my throat. And I was worried what might happen. If he doesn't talk to me sometime tonight, I know my head's going to be on the chopping block tomorrow morning. And so I took the cup of the wine and I tasted it. It was safe. And I handed it to King Artaxerxes and he could stand it no longer. He looked me in the eye and he said, Why are you sad? when you are not sick? What is this evil that you've brought before me? This could only be sadness of the heart. Well, you could tell I was probably nervous by then, but my plan was working. And I needed to reassure the king that I brought no evil or impurity before him. And I said, let the king, my Lord, live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the place of my father's graves is desolate and its gates are burned with fire? What would you request, Nehemiah? And in an imperceptible moment, I thanked God that there was an opening, an invitation to talk to the king. But I also prayed for wisdom and clarity as I would go forth with my plan. If it pleases my lord the king, and if I have found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, so that I might rebuild it. Well, King Artaxerxes looked over at the queen who was sitting beside him, probably looking for some kind of encouragement or suggestion. And she did one of those shoulder nudges that said, well, just go on. Grandma used to do that to granddad, but she used more than her shoulder. Well, I'm not sure if her shoulder nudge aided my cause or not, but my fate was now in the hands of King Artaxerxes. I would either go to Jerusalem or I would be executed for insubordination. But he did inquire, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? Well, that was an easy, direct question. One year, my lord, including the journey, there and back. And what will you rebuild? My lord, the gates and the walls to protect the city, to make it safe, and to care for the dead. Good. I need a loyal subject there in the provinces beyond the river. 
Egypt is ever a concern of mine, and you would do well to be set up as the satrap there in the provinces beyond the river. Besides, someone needs to address the desecration caused by the former governors. And also, king, if it pleases you, let letters be given to me so that I may pass safely until I reach Judah beyond the river. And also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that I might have timbers so that I can rebuild the walls and the gates and the fortress near the temple, as well as my residence where I am to live. Yes, very well, Nehemiah. This is a good plan. I will grant you what you seek. Well, it was four months later when we finally arrived in Judah and the provinces beyond the river. And I knew that God would protect us on our journey. But I was also grateful that the king sent his army with me. Besides, I couldn't just refuse. If I had refused his army, he would have said, What is this? You want to go there and I'm to protect you to make sure that I am good on my investment and you're going to reject my provision for you? I had to accept without it seeming as though I had ulterior motives. And when I arrived, I greeted the governor, saying, Megabias, satrap of the provinces beyond the river, I greet thee in the name of King Artaxerxes. I am here on his orders to rebuild the city of Judah. And then I presented him with the papers. You have my leave, Nehemiah. Go, do as you've been ordered. But beware. Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, they have heard of your arrival and are not pleased. They know that you come with the hand of your God seeking the welfare of the sons of Israel. Thank you, Megabias. May you live long and prosper. I will take heed. Pray you will also. And he nodded in agreement. So when we arrived in Jerusalem, I needed to gather three men for a secret mission. The people were doubting, faithless, and broken. And we needed to come together and form a plan. And so I called Hanan, Malchijah, and Shalem over to me, and we decided that we would go under the cover of night to survey the walls and its gates and make preparations to repair them. All right, Hanan, come here. You will take the valley gate. We will survey the walls, and I will give you instructions on the supplies needed to repair it. Malchijah, Come with me, we will go to the dung gate, and there we will also survey the walls and its gate. And Shalem, you follow with me. We will go to the fountain gate, review that, and make ready for our repairs. But make sure that our plan is in secret. None of the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else who is to do the work must be told lest our plan be found out and our dissenters know. Because God's plan might be jeopardized 
by the doubt in this broken and faithless people. And then when we have our plan, we will gather the people together, all those who are to do our work, and we will tell them what God has put on our heart. And so rest and pray. We begin at nightfall. And so the cover of night came, and we began our descent from the Temple Mount down to the Valley Gate. All right, Hannon, here's the Valley Gate. We will need 30 good timbers to make the repairs and a load and a half of quarried stone to fortify it. The wall will require an additional three loads of stone. Write it down. And then it was morning, and we rested the remainder of the day until we continued our journey. And then at night, we surveyed the next portion of the wall down towards the dung gate, and I called Malkaija. Malkaija, come here. This gate is completely destroyed by fire. It will need 50 good timbers, and it will need two loads of quarry to fortify it. We'll need an additional three loads of stone to repair the wall from here back to valley. Please write it down. Our evening was over, and we rested again. And then on the third night, we turned northward, back toward the Temple Mount, where we would pass by the fountain gate and the wall. But here, the old city of David had a rock fall, and the landslide had totally covered the wall and its gate. I was riding on a donkey, and I could not even pass through it. And so I called Shalem over, and I said, Look here, Shalem, what shall we do? We can't pass through the gate, and the wall is completely destroyed. My Lord, I believe if we have 100 men, we can clear the debris from where the gate was, and there's enough good timber there, we would only need 20 more to repair it, and we can use all the quarry from this debris to repair the gate. But what about the wall? Surely we can't clear that in that amount of time. No, Shalem, we're going to have to rebuild around it and go up the side of the Kidron Valley. So we will need five loads of stone. Write it down. And so we returned to the valley gate in the Temple Mount. The survey of the wall had been complete. Then I prayed and stood before the people, all the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and everyone else who was to do the work. And I said, O Lord, as you have given me favor before the king, King Artaxerxes, would you now grant me favor before your people who would do this work? And so Hanan, Malkijah, and Shalem, and I, we gathered the people together and reported all that we had found, the supplies that would be needed, the new route for the wall to go up along the Kidron Valley, and the time it would be required to rebuild it. I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate, and its gates are burned with fire. You continue to live in fear, doubting God's word, and whether he has actually called you back from exile for this. Remember God's word. He said that he would gather you from among the nations and bring you back 
to make a place for his name to dwell. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach to God. He has given me favor in the sight of King Artaxerxes so that I might leave my post, have the papers to come here freely to get the supplies that we need to defend and rebuild Jerusalem. Come, let us rebuild the wall. And the people with a great voice cried out, Yes, let us rebuild the wall. And so they set their hands to the good work of the Lord. But in the distance, our enemies could be seen. Sanballat, Tobiah, and now even Geshem the Arab was with them. You'd never see those three together. They were enemies in their own right, unless they were opposing Israel. And if they were to unify under one banner, it would be a hundred to one. We would be completely outmatched. Would we be fearful and doubting and faithless once again? And so I prayed and asked God for protection. I said, O oh Lord my God, keep me from fear and despair. As you've shown your people the protection you granted me before the king Artaxerxes, now also grant me favor before these men. And so I went up to meet them. What is this thing you're doing? Tobiah asked. Are you yet again rebelling against the king? Will you rebuild this wicked and rebellious city? Boldly and with resolve, I answered, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion here. You have no right to this land, no memorial in Jerusalem to serve the Lord our God. We will have nothing to do with you. We will rebuild the walls. And as they turned to go home, I caught that conniving glint in their eyes. We had not seen the last of our enemies. And they smirked and rode away. It would take us 52 days to rebuild the wall. But the Lord, our God, would revive our souls and restore Israel because he would make a home for his people. But did he return? I fasted, I prayed, and I waited. God had rebuilt the temple. God had rebuilt the walls. The city was restored again. And yet at the end of my time, I prayed and asked God, Remember me, O God, for the good. So this morning we heard a story from Nehemiah. 
and how he struggled with that one question of, where are you, O God? And we heard how he chose to respond. It's a story of a man who prayed for God to act and to plan how he would be involved in the act of God. And so, through those prayerful plans, God did use Nehemiah to revive and restore his people. The work was completed. The people's faith were revived to do that good work. And they cried out with a loud voice, We will arise and rebuild. And they set their hands to that good work. Yet God's presence did not return to Jerusalem. At least not yet. We know that one would come who would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's act through Nehemiah preserved his people so that the son of David would again be king and revive and restore our souls. This morning, are you asking that same question? God, where are you? In the midst of this difficult circumstance, in the midst of trying to figure out what the next step is supposed to be. Maybe you've suffered loss or you're suffering from a terminal illness. Maybe you have to think of plans once college is done or you're going through a difficult job transition or need to make one soon. Maybe you just need to have that difficult conversation with a family member, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, or a boss. And you've been praying and fasting and wondering, God, where are you? You want a clear answer. What am I supposed to do? The good news is that we have Christ. And that he does revive and restore our broken and faithless souls. But we can also learn from Nehemiah to pray and plan. That he was a man who sought after the heart of God. And even when he didn't hear clearly or see God's manifest presence among his people, he relied on God's word. And he acted in accord. He knew that God's covenant with his people was to return to gather them from exile to make a place for his name to dwell. And Nehemiah acted on that truth. And so today, as we have Christ, we can also do as Nehemiah did, and we can pray and plan. And through faith, God will revive and restore our souls. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, gracious and almighty God, we praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ, that we don't have to live always asking that same question that Nehemiah did at the end of his life, wondering, maybe even doubting, whether or not you were among your people. Today, it is your Spirit who lives among us that we are filled by the Holy Spirit to illuminate and ignite our souls that we might have life in you. And so as we respond to your message, may we dedicate ourselves to prayer, to reading your word, and to asking that you would reveal your plan for our lives. Even when we doubt, when we wonder where you are in the midst of it all. Grant us faith and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.